All right, everyone, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open up to Habakkuk chapter three. And um, I want to start by asking the question I started with a couple weeks ago, because Advent is about waiting. And so the question is, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for this Advent? Well, Advent is about waiting for salvation, waiting to be rescued, waiting to be helped, waiting to be liberated, waiting for better times, waiting for things to be made right, waiting for salvation. That's what Advent's about. It's an active waiting, an anticipating, a longing for, a looking forward to, a preparing and probably more, more than in other recent years, we have been aware of our need for salvation. With COVID, with political turmoil and division and fear, with environmental concerns, with lack of morality among our leaders, with other things as well, do you feel it? Do, do you feel the mess that we're in? And do you feel our need for someone to save us? That's what Advent is about, and that's what Habakkuk 3 is about. If you remember where we started in Habakkuk a couple weeks ago, back in chapter 1, Habakkuk was waiting for justice and praying for justice. Remember, how long, O Lord, do, do you make me look at injustice, he prayed. The wicked him in the righteous so that justice is perverted. And then God answered Habakkuk, right? God said, Look at the nations, watch and be utterly amazed. I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. I'm raising up the Babylonians to punish your people, to punish my people because of their injustice. And Habakkuk couldn't believe it. What, Lord? May that never be. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You can't tolerate wrongdoing. And you're going to let the wicked Babylonians swallow up those more righteous than themselves? And then at the end of Habakkuk's complaint to God, he began um, in the very beginning of chapter 2 by concluding, he said, I will stand at my watch. I will look to see what God will say to me and what answer I'm to give to this complaint that he had made to God. And then we saw last week when Greg was with us in chapter two, that God answered Habakkuk a second time. God said, don't worry, in time, I will punish Babylon too. They also will get everything coming to them for their injustice, for their arrogant violence, for their ruthless oppression. And then God went on to pronounce five woes on Babylon, we saw cataloging all of Babylon's evils and how God would pay it back on their own heads well, imagine after all of that, imagine poor Habakkuk. He's going through this. He's trying to digest this, this difficult conversation he's having with God. It's definitely more than he bargained for when he started out praying a simple prayer for justice, like many of us have prayed. And, and as Habakkuk has pondered all this, and as he's lived with it, and he sat in it, and he's distraught, and he's disturbed, and he's confused, and he's blown away by the mystery of God, in time, his heart begins to shift. 
And we notice that now as we come to chapter three, Habakkuk is no longer praying for justice. Now he's praying for mercy. Notice verse two, last time, God, or last line of verse two, God in wrath, remember mercy. That's what Habakkuk is longing for now. He's longing for God's mercy. Habakkuk is waiting for salvation. Listen to verse one. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. As we'll see in this chapter, Habakkuk is is thinking back now to all the times that God has mightily saved his people in the past. The exodus from Egypt under Moses, the book of Judges, the deliverance that that Deborah and Barak, um, God gave them from the oppressor Sisera. Uh, Joshua's victory over the Amalekites. There are allusions in chapter 3 to to all of these past deeds of salvation and to others as well. Repeat them in our day, Habakkuk prays. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. In other words, save us again, Lord. You've done it before. Do it again. Habakkuk is waiting for God's salvation. Salvation from Babylon, that terrible oppressor that God is sending to punish his own people for their injustice. Well, as Habakkuk is praying for God's mercy here in chapter 3 and waiting for God's salvation, he has a vision. He has two new visions, actually, two that are related to one another. And the first in verses 3 to 7 is a vision of God appearing. Sometimes this is called a theophany. God shows up. God reveals himself. And then the second vision in verses 8 to 15, there's there's a description of God coming as a divine warrior to set his people free, to rescue them from their enemies, and to bring them salvation. And these two visions of God, by the end we see they fortify Habakkuk, they change Habakkuk. And we'll see that when we get down to verses 16 and following. Knowing God will do that. Remembering afresh what God is like will strengthen your faith. And um, this will happen as you get a renewed vision in your heart and in your mind of what God is like. And so if we're going to wait this Advent, we can be best helped by remembering who we're waiting for and what God is like who we're waiting for. And that's what we have here in Habakkuk 3. We have a fresh revelation, a reminder of who God is and what God is like. So let's take a look. First, Habakkuk sees God show up, arrive on the scene in verses 3 to 7. And the first thing we see in this first revelation is the great majesty and splendor of God. Kings like the Babylonian king uh, back at that time would dress to impress big time. They would wear robes. They would wear jewels, dazzling crowns to portray their majesty, their greatness. They'd surround themselves with attendants to display their power and their importance with perhaps some sort of musicians to go before them singing their praises everywhere they went. But... All of that doesn't hold a candle to God. Verse 3, God's glory covers the heavens and his praises fill the earth. 
His splendor is like the sunrise. God is beautiful. God is majestic. God is important. Anything that a human being can concoct to elevate their glory is just a, a poor imitation. You, you watch the Grammys or you watch the Oscars and everyone is, is decked out, right, in their finest. And there are there's lighting and there is glitz and there are red carpets and there's an adoring crowd and it's all designed to impress. Have you ever watched an award show like that and been impressed? That's what it's all designed to portray. But go outside after that on a beautiful day, maybe at sunset, and look at the heavens, the, the slowly changing colors, the majestic clouds, the dome of the sky. That's only a small taste of God's majesty. And God doesn't need a, a TV set. He doesn't need special effects. He doesn't need an expensive venue. And it's not just once a year. God's splendor is all over the world, all the time. God's majesty, God's greatness are there for us to see. And on the very rare moments like Habakkuk experienced where God shows up more personally, like we read here, and, and as God did at times for other prophets like Isaiah or Daniel, you can't even imagine how amazing it is. Habakkuk does his best to express it for us, to, to describe it, but words fail as they did for the other prophets. Well, not only is God majestic and splendorous, God is also powerful. Verse 4, rays flash from his hand where his power is hidden. Plague goes before him, pestilence follows in his steps. Boy, that one hits close to home, right? Plagues. Back at that time in Habakkuk's culture, gods were sometimes pictured in, in whether it was frescoes or uh, statues. Um, they were pictured as being flanked by personifications of plague and disease. And this was a nod to the fact that epidemics have huge power beyond our ability to control. They, they have their way with us. I mean, we're even experiencing that with all the science we have today. Think about how it was back in Habakkuk's time. There's little we can do about pestilence or plague. And so who can control them but one as powerful as a god? This picture of God coming flanked by plague and pestilence is, is also a reminder of the plagues of Egypt, which God controlled, or perhaps the plague that decimated Assyria in, in Hezekiah's time to rescue the, the people of Judah. It's, it, this picture is a reminder of God's power. God, who has the power to halt a plague or to allow one to come. Verse 6 continues, God stood and the earth shook. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled. The age-old hills collapsed, but he marched on forever. What's more solid and, and steadfast than, than the mountains? We don't live here super close to, to any mountains. But imagine if you lived out west, and every day of your life, you looked out your window, and there was one of the great peaks of, of the Cascade Range, like Rainier or uh, Baker or St. Helens, it, it was there hulking over you, dependable, a, a given in your life, an indelible part of the landscape. Our family one time visited Mount St. Helens and um, 
the picture before and after it erupted is, is striking. And, and just imagine if, if you lived there with, with a view of the mountain and if you survived the eruption, just how hard it would be to get used to the change afterwards compared to what had been true and what you had seen every day of your life, how disconcerting, how weird it would feel. Think of the power involved to affect that sort of change to something so steadfast and indelible. Only God has power like that to, to shake the whole earth, to make the nations tremble. That's the picture of God that Habakkuk sees here and elaborates here and tries to describe for us. Sorry, just trying to get rid of the Mount St. Helens. Well, incidentally, Habakkuk also talks about some places, Timon, Mount Paran, Kushan, Midian, just in case you're wondering about those, those were locations to the south of Israel. They would have meant a lot more to Habakkuk and his listeners than they do to us. But in various places in the Old Testament, God is pictured as coming from those directions down in the southern desert. So as we step back from this first picture, are, are you getting the picture that Habakkuk is, is trying to convey to us here that he has experienced in this revelation from God? God is splendorous. God is important. God is magnificent. God is powerful, bright like light, powerful enough to bring life and death, mighty enough to shake the earth and the mountains and to rearrange the unchangeable landmarks of our surroundings. That's what Habakkuk wants us to know. Because when we know what God is like, it, it will begin to change us. It will change our perspective. It will alter our outlook. It will shift our attitude. Once there was um, a father working at home. A lot of us have experienced that lately. And his young son was pestering him for some attention. But, but the father was trying to buy some time so he could finish up what he was doing. And, and he had the newspaper on his desk. And, and on it was, was a, a picture of a map of the world. And so he took it and he tore it into pieces. And he said to his son, here, put this back together. It's a puzzle for you, right? Really creative. So, um, of course, his son didn't know all these countries. His son was young. He didn't know where they went. So the dad figured this would buy him some time. It would take his son a long time to figure out how to put this puzzle together. But the son eagerly began doing it. And to his surprise, a few minutes later, the, the son is, is, is uh, tugging on his sleeve saying, Daddy, I'm done. I'm, I'm finished. And, and, and he was. And, and the father's amazed. And um, he says, son, how did you do this so fast? You don't know where all those countries go. And, and the son said, yes, Daddy. But on the other side of the paper you gave me was a picture of a man. And once I got the man together the world came together pretty good too. And that's what Habakkuk is doing for us. He's showing us a picture of the man, God in the analogy. And when that comes together, when that picture becomes clear, the world will come together pretty good too. We'll see it more clearly at least and know who's in charge of it and know our place in it. 
Well, after showing us what, what God is like, Habakkuk shares his second vision. And as he gives us this second picture of God, this time God is a divine warrior. God is striding forth to engage the enemy in battle. And there's a deliberate contrast here between this picture and the picture back in, in chapter one that Habakkuk painted for us of the Babylonian invaders. If you go back and you read chapter one, Babylon was fierce, swift as horses, fiercer than wolves at dusk, galloping like cavalry, swooping like eagles, wanting to devour. And that was a terrifying picture, but it's nothing compared to God. Now Habakkuk says, picture all of those fierce beasts and cavalry caught in the mud of a torrential rainstorm, circling in panic, looking for somewhere to hide. Because now God has come as a warrior. Riding his horses and his chariots to victory, verse 8. God uncovers his bow, verse 9. He calls for many arrows. Picture lightning here. God splits the earth with rivers. Here come the flash floods from the torrential rain. The mountains, verse 10, writhe. Torrents of water sweep by. The deep roars and lifts up its waves on high. Are you seeing how Babylon or any of other, other of God's enemies, for that matter, don't stand a chance before the coming of God? As Habakkuk describes God's deliverance engaging the enemy, Habakkuk is drawing again on the route of, of Sisera and Judges by Barak and um, Deborah, the, the defeat of um, Egypt at the time of the Exodus with Moses, Noah and the flood come to mind as well. There are, there are allusions to all of these mighty acts of salvation here. Verse 11 as well reminds us of Joshua, if you know that story. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens, Habakkuk recounts. At the glint of your flying arrows, at the, light, at the lightning of your flashing spear, in wrath you rode through the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one, your Messiah. God has come to rescue his people and their king, and nothing will stand in God's way. And now we see the fate of God's enemies. Verse 13. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness, Babylon. You stripped him of his armor from head to foot. With his own spear, you pierced his head. Are you getting the picture? Don't worry, God is showing Habakkuk. Babylon seems fierce and ferocious and terrible now, and they are. But they are, uh, rather, they, and they are going to bring my judgment on your leaders because of their injustice and on your people. But they can only invade because I allow it. And when their time is up, they don't stand a chance of sticking around. I will come to rescue you. What a picture. What a perspective. It reminds me of, of being a kid the first time I went sailing. My dad rented a small boat. We lived near a state park and he took us out on the lake. Um, my mom, my sister and me, I was, I was really young and I was kind of scared at that time in general of boats because they tipped and they wobbled. And, and what if I fell in? And I liked rowboats because they were pretty stable and steady. Canoes were iffy, they could rock and tip. I was pretty nervous about canoes. 
but nothing had prepared me for a sailboat because they actually sail tipped sideways <laughs> when the wind catches them. And I, as a, as a young kid, I was totally terrified. We got out on the sailboat, the wind caught our sail. We started tipping, I felt it. I saw the water coming closer to the side of the boat. I thought we were goners, I burst into tears. And what I needed at that time was to look up at my dad and to see that he was strong and sure and, and confident and capable. He wasn't afraid. He, he knew what he was doing. He was in control. He would keep us safe. And, and that's what God is offering Habakkuk and us here in this chapter. Because for Habakkuk and sometimes for us, it totally feels like the world is tipping over. And that we're going to fall and we're going to drown. Well, guess what? When I was a kid in that sailboat, even seeing my dad confident and in control, and I remember him saying, oh, you know, don't worry, don't worry, it's, it's fine. It didn't comfort me as a kid. It didn't stop me from shaking or crying. And that's actually how Habakkuk feels too. Verse 16, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Wouldn't yours? Remember again, all Habakkuk has been through. He started with a pious prayer for justice. He, he just wanted God to stop bad people among God's people from doing bad things. And then he found out Babylon was coming to utterly and ruthlessly attack his people and that this was God's justice. Babylon, who was far worse than the bad people that he had complained about in the first place. And then he complains to God again, and God says, don't worry, eventually I'll come and I'll judge Babylon too. You think they're splendorous? You think they're powerful? Wait till you see me. And all of this is just too much for Habakkuk. He's undone. He's confused. He's overwhelmed. He's baffled. And meanwhile, he's got to wait. For all, all of this is, is going to take a long time. Salvation is going to take a long time. In fact, God never tells Habakkuk when God is going to save his people, except to say back in chapter 2, verse 3, though it linger, wait for it. <laughs> well, in, in the meantime, all Habakkuk has to look forward to is that Babylon is coming. That's where he's at in the story. Babylon, Babylon is on his doorstep. And, and things are going to get a lot, lot worse before they get better. In fact, Habakkuk likely won't live to see the better times. Look how he ends, verse 16. He says, yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. And then he paints this striking picture of what he knows is coming first before God's salvation. And to get the force of this, imagine living in a farm community a long time ago. There are no grocery stores, no refrigerators, no fast food. What you're going to eat today and tomorrow and for the next year is hanging on trees and on vines. It's in fields and it's in barns. That's the food you depend on. And if that goes away, there's no plan B. Verse 17. 
Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, it's all been taken away by Babylon, stripped, poached, raided, destroyed. And yet, Habakkuk continues, verse 18, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. Why? The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Can you believe this ending? Can, can you believe the, the faith of this man who has seen God? To have peace, to have joy, given all that he's about to, to face, how can he respond like this? Well, I can assure you, I think, that Habakkuk didn't write verse 18 immediately after verses 16 and 17. Who knows how much time went by, how much wrestling, how much inner work had to take place in his heart to get from verse 17 to verse 18. But he does get there, and he does rejoice. Finally, the reality of who God is, the reality of all that we saw in verses 1 to 15, has begun to sink in and to take root in his heart. It, it takes time, doesn't it? But when you've seen God, when God has stripped away your idols and the other things that you're putting your trust in and that I'm putting my trust in, and, and who God is sinks in, and the fact that God is for us, it begins to change everything. It, it remaps the circuits of our reality. It, it puts the pieces of our world into perspective. If we're willing to put our faith in the one who will save us. And that's what Advent is about. It's about waiting for our Savior to come, to come back. And in the meantime, it's about setting our eyes on who our Savior is. And Habakkuk shows us how it's done. There's an old folk song called Spring Hill Mining Disaster. And it describes the plight of a, a number of miners who suffered a mine collapse back in the 1950s in Nova Scotia. And some of them died. Others were trapped for days in the dark, not knowing if or when they would be rescued. And there's a line in the song which says, three days passed and the lights gave out. When the leading man got up and said, there's no more water, nor light, nor bread. So we'll live on songs of hope instead will live on songs of hope instead. And that's what Habakkuk is, is learning to do, and that's what he's teaching us to do at Advent as we wait for our salvation. He's teaching us to live on songs of hope, to live on pictures and reminders like Habakkuk 3 of who our Savior is and what our Savior is like, especially in those moments when God seems far away when we don't see evidence that, that he's near or that he's doing very much. These songs of hope remind us of, of the one who is coming to the rescue and what that one is like. Let me close with some words from Hannah Whittle Smith. 
She was a leading voice and, and a spiritual writer during the revivals of the late 1800s. And she writes, sight is not faith and hearing is not faith. Neither is feeling faith, but believing when we can neither see, hear, nor feel is faith. And everywhere the Bible tells us that salvation is to be by faith. Therefore, we must believe before we feel, and often against our feelings, if we would honor God by our faith. That's what Habakkuk has learned to do in this um, amazing diary entry that he leaves us from his prayer life. And somehow that faith has transformed his life into peace, into hope, and into joy. And may it become true for us as well, this Advent. Let's respond by singing this next song as we close our service today. <laughs>